Let's be honest, few humans enjoy meetings and many feel trapped in meetings. As leaders, we don't want to burden those we lead, but meetings can seem to do that more often than not. We wanted to address the pain of meetings through the Meetings with Saints Library. Here we have 15 plus presentations dedicated to improving the meetings we run. We have experts in the field addressing topics like getting people involved in meetings, staying on task, dealing with conflict in meetings, and a ton more. We'd love you to explore the full Meetings with Saints library over 14 days at no cost to you. You can do this by visiting leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. We'll also give you access to all of our virtual libraries that educate about other leadership topics. It's really good stuff. So visit leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Now, for many of you that are brand new uh, to Leading Saints, it's important that you know that Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization, 501c3, dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation. We get so much positive feedback on the podcast, our virtual conferences, the articles on our website. You definitely got to check it out at leadingsaints.org. And on their homepage at leadingsaints.org, you can actually find the top six most downloaded episodes to the podcast. So if you're new, like the content, want to jump in to some of our most popular episodes, head there after you listen to this episode. As many of you know, I was part of a remarkable experience through latterdaytravel.com, who does some phenomenal Latter-day Saint-themed uh, vacations and travel experiences. And I was uh, on a cruise ship and I met an individual named Jeffrey Nance. And we talked a little bit about a story of meeting and what led to this interview. But I found out that Jeffrey was an army judge, or at least a retired army judge. And he's also a currently serving bishop or a judge in Israel. And I thought, man, this would be so fascinating to sit down with Jeffrey and just talk about the principles of being a judge, how to make tough calls when they impact somebody's life and, you know, people who've committed wrongs and what do we consider? What is mercy? You know, the concept of mercy, where does that play into all of this? And we had a phenomenal discussion. We spent the first about 20, 30 minutes just talking about Jeffrey's career, becoming a judge in the army, what that looked like, what his day-to-day life involved in. And uh, then we transition that into being a judge, a judge in Israel, a bishop, and where those principles manifested there. Uh, He was actually the judge on a very high-profile case with Bo Bergdahl. Many of you who follow politics and things may recognize that that name. Uh, But he was the judge that decided the Bo Bergdahl case. And uh, man, talking about a fascinating journey uh, and a uh, a bit tricky at times that he went through. Just a phenomenal story. Here we go. Let's jump into this. Learning more about how to be a judge. Not just a judge, though, a judge in Israel, making tough calls. Here we go. My interview with Jeffrey Nance. Today, I'm headed to Charleston, South Carolina with Jeffrey Nance. How are you, Jeffrey? I'm great. How are you? Good. Now, do you go by Jeff, Jeffrey, or just yeah, Bishop? Yeah, I go by e- either one. <laughs> either one. Either three. Okay. Either the three. It's fine. Nice. Now, we had the, the pleasure of meeting recently in January of 2023. We were on a cruise together, one of the Latter-day Travel cruises that I have the opportunity to uh, to speak on from time to time. And uh, you happened to be on the cruise, and we connected. So, Yeah, uh, that, that was great. That, yeah, it was a fun, a fun time to 
the group of Latter-day Saints there on the high seas. And, and uh, <laughs> it, was, it was an experience for sure. Uh, how how yeah. did you end up on that cruise? Well, we were at the temple back last summer. And um, we ran into some folks that we had known when we were stationed at Fort Gordon, Georgia. They were there at the temple. So we made this reunion. We hadn't seen them in years. And they said, hey, we're going on a cruise in January. You guys should go with us. And they told us all about it. And we said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So we looked into it. And yeah, that's how we ended up there. And then we told some other people about it and they came. So we had a small little uh, South Carolina slash Georgia contingent there. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. And as I was, uh, you know, I'm on the on the ship and I'm talking to different people, eating with different people. And a few of them, you know, a few in your group said, hey, listen, you've really got to talk with this uh, <laughs> this Jeffrey Nance guy. He's, he's a bishop and uh, he's had quite a career path. And I think he'd be a phenomenal interview. And and so after a little bit of arm twisting, we got you to, to agree to, to do in the interview. This isn't your your typical thing, right? Right. I mean, judges are taught to stay away from anything like this and avoid it, <laughs> Yeah, uh, those sorts of things. But Well, I promise I'll behave and uh, I'll give you the final call on if we need to cut anything. But let's jump into, I mean, you are, you are serving as a bishop currently, and we'll get into some details of that, but maybe just unpack your your career path that you've had. So after I got back from my mission, I was at BYU and uh, my wife, I got married, you know, uh, soon after coming back from my mission. And so it was in uh, the spring of 83. Anyway, I won't tell you the whole story, but I graduated undergrad in 85 and went to BYU Law School in 88. I graduated BYU Law School in 88. And I had an ROTC scholarship when I was an undergraduate, and that was sort of clear blue sky stuff, not something that we that I ever planned on. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't come from a particularly military background or anything like that. So anyway, I owed the Army four years of active duty after graduating from law school. So I said, okay, I'm going to do my four years and I'm going to get out. And I went in, did the basic training stuff, went to my first assignment at Fort Campbell, Kentucky with the 101st Airborne Division. And um, the it got to the three-year point and um, they said, well, you got a year, you get out, you can stay here until you get out, or we'll send you to Japan, to Okinawa, Japan. Oh, wow. But you got to sign on for another three years. So Janine and I, my wife's name is Janine. Janine and I mm-hmm. talked about it and we decided we had two little boys by this time. And we decided, yeah, let's do it. It'll be fun. So, so why why Japan? Like, what intrigued you about going to Japan? Actually, we'd never been there before. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> I served my mission in Australia, but you know, it, Australia is the Pacific, but it's definitely not the yeah. Orient. <laughs> nice. So, and at, and at this point, we, had you already gone through law school, or is that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I was serving in the JAG Corps. Okay. As a prosecutor, you know, defense attorney, that sort of thing. So we went over there, and when we came back, they sent me to Washington D.C. and I try and I planned to get out. Anyway, long story short, I kept trying to get out, and the <laughs> Lord would never let me out. I would get job offers at the wrong time, uh, <laughs> and so finally, after the, about the ten-year mark, where literally when we were packing up our our household belongings to move from Germany to Italy. And I got a call from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Phoenix, Arizona with a job offer and had to turn it down because the Army said, too late, they're packing up your stuff. 
I finally said, look, uh, Heavenly Father, I got it. You don't have to hit me over the head with a board. I'm going to stop trying to get out. Uh-huh. And so we stayed in uh, and loved it. It was great for us, uh, great for our children, and great, you know, great opportunities to serve in the church all over the world. Wow, that's fantastic. So tell me about, I, I don't quite understand the dynamic of like, being a lawyer in the army, because are you dealing with like court martial stuff or is it is there more to it? How would you explain it? Well, there's all sorts of things you do as a military lawyer. Criminal law is one of those and, and that involves courts martial. But you also do like the law of war. So you tell commanders, is it in compliance with the law if they shoot at this tank parked beside this uh, Mm. school or this hospital, you know. So I've done a little of that. You do some regulatory law, like advising commanders, you know, can the Girl Scouts sell cookies in front of the PX? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That sort of stuff. Just a wide array of things. Federal torts claims. Sometimes, A lot of times the army will break things, damage people's property while they're doing their training. And, um, you know, paratroopers landing in people's backyards. And and you have to deal with claims and stuff that arise out of that. So there's a wide array of stuff that we do, but I most spent most of my time doing criminal law and operational law. And when, when you can shoot at things and oh, law okay. of war and that sort of thing. And then criminal law is always connected somehow to the army if or just well, yeah. any type of criminal law? Yeah, all. I mean, the army, it, it was all... Army crimes, crimes committed by service members, uh, army service members. But it it can be, people generally think of criminal law in the army as just stuff like AWOL and and that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And certainly we have those things, but we also have the full array of every other crime that you can think of on the state and federal level. All of those Mm -hmm. also are covered by the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And so I've prosecuted, defended, and set as a judge on cases, every type that you could possibly think of, you know, you name it, and I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go to a certain, like a unique type of law school or is just any type of law school, and then you just apply it in that arena? The latter. Okay. You go to any type of law school, well, I guess I should say sort of a mix. You can go to any type of law school and then the JAG Corps will take you in if you meet the qualifications, and then they will train you up on the things that are uniquely military um, gotcha. that you didn't learn in law school. But the rules of evidence and the rules of criminal procedure are pretty much lifted and put into the UCMJ from the federal court rules. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially yeah. the same thing. So early on in your career, you thought, well, I'll do my time with the Army, and then you were hoping to get a, just a, a job for a law firm in the private sector. Is that the, the, the idea? Well, I, I really wanted to, I wasn't ever, I clerked for a law firm in Salt Lake City when I was in, in my second, third years of law school. And I liked the people and some of the stuff was interesting, but I always wanted to be involved with the criminal law. So my plan hmm. was to get a job with a U.S. attorney's office somewhere and prosecute serious federal yeah. crimes. That was my plan when I when I got out. Yeah. So at what point did you become a, a judge in the Army? And, and is it a similar, you know, nomination process like a, a federal judge or, or what is that process like? And then what was your story on top of that? 
Yeah. So about halfway through, I became a, a military judge. I spent 30 years in before I retired. And so about halfway through, about year 16, I became a military judge. And the way you do that in the Army is you try to, you know, get a lot of experience doing prosecution and defense work, criminal defense work. And then you apply when you get to the right sort of time window, you apply. And uh, it's a competitive process. It's decided at the Army JAG Corps level, you know, at the Pentagon. And I got lucky. I wasn't going to apply, right? I thought my wife, you know, one day I said, boy, I would love to be a military judge. And she said, you should apply. When can you apply? And I told her, and she said, you should apply. I said, I'm not going to apply. They'll never take me. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, no, apply. And they said, yeah. So, and I, once I got in there, I told them, look, I don't ever want to do anything else. Just let me do this for the rest of my time. And they did, luckily. What was it about that job that was so enjoyable? You know, I guess it was, you know, trying to make decisions that were fair and just and uh, helping the lawyers on both sides sort of do their best job. You know, the judge can do that if the judge handles mistakes in the right way, right? If you flame somebody out or, you know, make them feel like a moron when they make a mistake, then they're, they're not as likely to to want to try hard again, or they'll want to go do something else like operational law where they mm-hmm. can see the people who, where it's not their friends who are shooting at them. But if you sort of say, look, uh, that's, that's not the right way to do that. You can do better than that. Here's how to do it. You know, of course, you don't do that during the trial, but after the trial, you can sit down with them and say, you know, you, you've got to do better about your laying a foundation for, uh, getting this sort of document in. And here's how you mm-hmm. do it. And then, you know, anyway, that's part of what I liked about it. And just trying to, just trying to, the biggest part of it uh, that I liked was trying to do justice for both parties of interest, whether it's a victim in a sexual assault case or the, and the accused or the government in some crime against the government and always trying to protect the constitutional rights of the accused. Just, yeah. You know, so it was a fulfilling job because not only, you know, were you maybe helping justice be served and and making sure the rule of law was respected and, you know, victims were, you know, were heard and and whatnot. But you are also assisting those uh, those attorneys that were trying to to do that, had the same good intentions as well. Right. And protecting the system and the constitutional rights of the accused. I mean. I think I think our military justice system is the best criminal justice system in the world. Not just the best military justice system in the world. I think it's the best criminal justice system oh, in wow. the world for a lot of reasons. But if the system if the system doesn't work properly, if people if the public doesn't have confidence in the system, then you really don't have a justice system. So I always felt like it was the judge's responsibility to protect that system. And if you see something happening that shouldn't happen, if the public sees something happening that everybody knows should not happen, then the system gets a black eye and people lose confidence in it. And it's the judge's, the judge has has the greatest responsibility for protecting that. And, you know, I, I, uh, 
I always felt that strongly. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest difference? You say that the military justice system is uh, is the best system. How, what's the difference between that and just the traditional justice system that we see in you know as civilians? Well, the biggest you say that what which is the biggest difference? The biggest yeah. difference is that in the military justice system you have a professional jury, and by that I mean they don't have as their profession to be jurors. They are professionals, all right. They are your military peers, but they are they've have experience in the military. They are have been commanders. They've been senior non-commissioned officers mm. and army officers and non-commissioned officers take when they are given instructions and orders. And that's essentially what I would do as the military judge when it came time to charge the jury to make a decision on guilt or innocence or to a judge of an appropriate sentence. I would give them a, a whole list of instructions for how to do that. Every judge does that the worldwide. But the difference is you've got professional, educated, hardworking people who are used to taking orders and dedicated to following those orders. And they're going to go back there, you know, not always, you know, no system is perfect, but the vast majority of the time, they're going to go back and follow those instructions and get to justice. And that's that's why I think uh, a jury of professionals, let's put it that way, is better than, you know, just pulling people off the street sometimes who have nothing better to do. Yeah. That's interesting. So I, the members of, the, of a jury would have, they've been through some level of rigor and training and they understand maybe the uh, dynamics of the military and whatnot rather than you know, I, I've served on a jury, you know, just jury duty and whatnot. And there were some people on the jury who hadn't even thought twice about how the court system works, you know, let alone right. how to make a decision of guilty or innocent. Right. So that's right. And these are usually a military jury. These are usually people who have been around a while. They've been in leadership positions and they've had training about how the military justice system works. Mm, so interesting. OK. Yeah, they're not coming into it ignorant. Yeah. Now, I know you want to talk much about this, but I know you were the judge of maybe a more high-profile case. Uh, is there any details that you can share there or maybe help us understand the process and use that as an example of the process you would go through as a judge? Yeah, well, that was my last. I had to, I presided over a few uh, high-profile cases, but the last one, the last case I presided over was Bergdahl case, uh, United States versus Bergdahl. And the one thing I'll share about it or two and, things. And maybe I'll just can you things. put it into context, like what the story was? Like basically, Bergdahl so, was a. Go ahead. Bergdahl yeah. was a was a soldier in Afghanistan, and he and his uh, small unit were out on um, a mission. They were dug in uh, foxholes, right? I mean, the public doesn't understand how these young men live in those circumstances. They were living in a hole in the ground for weeks at a time, and that wasn't unique. I mean, that was that's common, but anyway. His unit was all dug in at this crossroads, you know, protecting a convoys coming through there, looking for bad guys. And um, Bergdahl walked away from his post, I mean, in bad guy country, and tried to make his way back to the forward operating base where his commander was to voice his uh, discontent about the way things were being done down there. And while he was on his way back, he got grabbed by the Taliban. And they kept him and tortured him for five years. He escaped one time for a couple of weeks 
and was trying to find his way back home. And they found him again and beat him some more and put him in a, a metal cage this time where he stayed for the rest of the time until the Obama administration negotiated a trade for him. And they traded five Gitmo detainees for him. And so we got him back. He was charged with misbehavior before the enemy and desertion and some other things, minor offenses. Misbehavior before the enemy can be capital, a death penalty offense, but his case was not referred capital. So he was just facing, you know, a long, a potentially maximum sentence, a pretty high number of years or life in in prison. So, you know, that's the background of the case. Yeah. Um, so by the time it lands on your desk, I mean, this has been, I mean, it's been in the media. It's like a political football as far as what both sides are saying should be done. And then it exactly. was uh, the way the Obama administration handled it was under criticism. And I mean, there, there's just so many, so much around it. Right. And now it's and you're the judge. In this case. Yeah. And President Trump had made some very inflammatory comments during his campaign about mm-hmm. Bergdahl and how Obama, President Obama mishandled it and what President Trump would do if he were elected president and all of that. So there was a lot of focus on it, political focus on it from both sides. Senator McCain made some comments. Senator Lindsey Graham made some comments. And, you know, so it was, there was a lot of uh, high-pitched feelings from both sides on it. And a law professor from uh, an adjunct law professor from Yale volunteered to work from Yale Law School volunteered to uh, work free on Bo Bergdahl's defense. And he had a bunch of other lawyers too, and there were government lawyers everywhere and highly classified documents, thousands of pages of them. So it was a lot of work and real high pucker factor (laughs) (laughs) for the military judge. I mean, you don't want to get something like that, that, that wrong especially classified documents. You don't want to mishandle classified documents, right? Yeah, we, we, we've gotten several <laughs> lessons as of late for, um, yeah. with many people, right? So, you know, I, I was plugging along with the case and I was praying the whole time. I said, because uh, in the military, the accused has the right to choose and, and in civil court, in civilian court as well, has the right to choose whether their case will be heard by a judge alone or by a jury. That's a right that everybody has. And so we were gearing up for a jury trial. I had, you know, we were almost to the point of trial and had the jury all, the jury pool all laid on. And uh, the whole time I was praying, please don't let him choose. Please don't let him (laughs) choose judge alone. (laughs) Oh, wow. Please, please let him. Because you knew at this point you would be the judge either way, jury or no jury. I would be the judge, jury or no jury. But. If the jury had the decisions to make, nobody could blame me for the decision. (laughs) And no matter how it came out, somebody was going to blame me. You know, everybody was entrenched on either side of the issue. So, you know, uh, um, shortly before trial was to start, he changed his uh, forum selection and decided that he wanted to go judge alone. So then the real hard work, the hard part began. And anyway, you know, when the trial was over, there were a lot of people that expressed their displeasure online. Some of them belonged to the to the District of Columbia Bar, 
and they had published my personal contact information online. So they got my phone number and my address. I was getting threatening telephone calls and hate mail afterwards, but it didn't last very long. It uh, lasted a couple months afterwards. Everybody moved on to a new thing to get worked up about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, how long did that process, that trial take then? It took about 17 months, something like that. Oh, wow. And And it's like every day type thing or? Well, no, not every day. Uh, Early on in the trial, I issued an order based on a motion by the defense counsel that the government didn't like about disclosing certain information to the defense counsel. So the defense counsel appealed that motion. And because of the nature of the information, the whole trial had to stop for uh, four months while the appeals courts decided whether I got that issue right or not. We couldn't do a thing in the Mm -hmm. case for four months because of that appeal. Gotcha. So with with different appeals and paperwork and motions, I mean, it's there's a lot of space in between all the, those 17 Yeah, months. and anytime a case has classified documents as evidence, as material that one side is looking to discover, the judge has to go through that material. And in a skiff, you've heard that word now yeah, a lot yeah. lately, I had to go to a skiff in various locations throughout the country and look at all of this classified information and make a decision under the rules whether the other side got to see it or not. And then had to keep track of what I had looked at and how I had ruled on it so that the appeals court could look at it later and say, yeah, you you made the right decision there or no, you didn't make the right decision there. So interesting that that took a lot of took a lot of time, because, like I said, it was thousands and thousands of pages. (laughs) When I started that trial, I hardly ever needed reading glasses. But by the time (laughs) that trial was over. I was using a plus 2.25 reading glasses. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> and so how would you explain the final ruling that you had on that that case? What do you mean? Like what was what your was, final what ruling? Was it? Yeah. Well, eventually, ultimately, he pled guilty oh, okay. uh, to desertion and misbehavior before the enemy. And I sentenced him to a dishonorable discharge and reduction in rank uh, he was a Sergeant E5 when the trial occurred. I reduced him down to a private E1, and I fined him some money, but I did not give him jail time. And that's what everybody was – that's what the people who were upset were upset about. Gotcha. All right. So this is great. I really appreciate that context. And now that – let's shift gears here to another judge hat. Is How long have you been serving as a judge in Israel and as a bishop? Well, this time, only – Eight months. So this is your second go at it? Yeah, I bet I was a branch president in Italy. Oh, cool. um, we were the only English-speaking unit in the stake. My stake president was Italian, and he could speak only, you know, he could speak about as much English as I could speak Italian. So our <laughs> pre- personal priesthood interviews were awesome. <laughs> oh, wow. Did you have a, a we, translator or? Nope. Oh, <laughs> we would goodness. just go in there and we would do our best. And it was mostly, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, it was amazing when we couldn't communicate verbally. The spirit, there was a ton of love. I always felt love and support from him. And I just had the greatest respect for him. Being a stake president in Italy has <laughs> got to be one of the hardest jobs there is yeah, in the church. 
And uh, he just uh, was just a very kind and gentle man and had a huge testimony. Nice. So that was, yeah, that was the first time. But those are the, this is the second time and about, yeah. about seven or eight months now, the second time. Nice. So is there a story behind uh, how you were called or what, what your ward like? Like, how would you just describe your experience as bishop? Well, when it came time to retire from the army in 2018, Janine and I had no idea where we wanted to, to live you know, sort of talked about it a little bit, but we had lived in a lot of cool places and the choices I considered, and she did too, that any of those places or any other place that we could think of was was an option, including back, going back overseas and living as expats in Germany or Italy. But one day she said, well, we were at Fort Bragg at the time. She said, uh, well, why don't we go down and look around in Charleston, which is where we both grew up. I mean, we've okay. known each other since we were six years old. We went to primary oh, cool. together. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, let's go. So we came down here. We looked around and she said, you know, I want to retire here. And I said, all right, I've been dragging you around for 30 years. We'll, we'll retire <laughs> where you want to retire. And so I was retiring, getting out of the army, finding a place, building a house down here. And I got a, a job offer with the Department of Justice to be an immigration judge, but they wanted me to do that in Georgia. And so I said I took it because the house was being built and we lived in a little, you know, apartment over a store in America's Georgia for a, a, about a year. And um, mm-hmm. then she moved into the house and I was commuting back and forth from America's Georgia to here on the weekends until I got myself transferred to Charlotte, North Carolina, and was commuting back and forth from Charlotte to Charleston, which is three hours, but that's less than five hours to Americas. And so I, I really, the only calling I could really you know, do was an occasional calling because there were some Sundays that I just wasn't here. And then one day my boss in Charlotte came to me and she said, listen, COVID has taught us that immigration judges can work from home. How would you like to run your court from home in Charleston and live at wow. live at home? I said, sign me up. So she made it happen. She's a great boss. She made it all happen. And I came down here and let's see, that was about January of 2022. Yeah, January 2022. And in April, they called me to be a counselor in the bishopric. And in June, the bishop got released and I was called to be the bishop. Hmm. So I really felt like I had a very strong impression when I was, when I, my boss told me, hey, you can work from home. I had a really strong impression that the Lord was, you know, putting me in a position where he could use me more because the ward is, it's the ward my wife and I grew up in. And there are a lot of people here who were you know, our leaders when we were teenagers who were now in their 80s and 90s. And, you know, I think they feel good having, <laughs> you know, as long as they don't remember everything I did as a teenager, they feel yeah. pretty good about having me as their bishop. Yeah. <laughs> if they well, think real special. hard, yeah. they, they, will, uh, they will say, wait a minute, how is this guy the bishop? <laughs> if their memories come back to them. But anyway. Yeah. That's how that all so, came down. Gotcha. There's this dynamic of being a judge in Israel as a bishop, and we sort of throw that title around a little bit. And we're 
maybe don't know how to put a lot of meaning behind it. I mean, obviously we, we have to make decisions and, and especially in the context of some sticky situations and, and maybe like what, what, what advice would you start with as far as giving advice to someone as a judge specifically, someone who's making decisions about the livelihood or, or spiritual journey of an individual? Yeah, well, that's a great question. When I was serving on a high council one time and my stake president came to me and said, and I was a military judge at the time, and he, he came to me and, and said, hey, this is cool. I mean, he was a, he and I were, were pretty good friends. He said, this stuff about being a military judge has got to be cool. It's got to be really hard. It's got to be very interesting. And, you know, we were, we were chatting and I said, well, you know, sometimes it is those things. I said, but I'm a judge in Babylon. You're a judge in Israel. And that is the best kind of judge mm. because you get to help people repent. And you can say, well, the criminal justice system is a part of the process of helping people repent. But most of the time, you're inflicting punishment on people who aren't looking to repent. It's just society's punishment. They're not really making anything whole. They're just paying their price to society. So I think the far better, more important judge is obviously the judge in Israel. And um, as far as, you know, my experiences in the church, I thought made me a better judge in Babylon because, you know, it's easy to say, okay, well, I'm going to just drop the hammer on anybody who commits X offense or anybody who commits Y offense. And that's certainly an approach, and some judges follow that approach. But I think the better approach is to try to figure out where justice and mercy come together in the criminal justice system, because there is room for mercy in the criminal justice system. You know, you've got to balance those things. That's a judge's job. And if you if you yeah. give that up by just saying, well, I've got a formula in my mind for what offense, what punishment a certain offense gets, then you're really not doing your job as a judge. You could have a computer figure out what the punishment should be for a person who commits, you know, yeah. a sexual assault or something. Yeah. So what insight comes to mind when you consider mercy and that the balance between justice and mercy, because I would imagine sometimes it's just easier to give justice, right? Like you did this and I'm completely justified in giving you justice and sorry, you just shouldn't have done this, right? And when it's like, can you give us on what you've learned about mercy as a judge? Well, as a criminal judge, there are times when, and I've had very few cases where the mercy part of the scale almost had nothing in it. Very few times. Most of the time, you know, there is some element of mercy that ought to be applied to even the worst kind of criminal. But I think the thing from my experience in the church that helped me realize that, and I think I felt like I applied it appropriately, was that ultimately what everybody wants, not just from a religious perspective, but from a societal perspective, is we want this person to Yes, pay their price for what they've done, but ultimately, if possible, be recovered, be redeemed, both from a a religious perspective and from a a societal perspective. I mean, society is not 
served well by having a bunch of people in prison forever. Now, some people deserve to be in prison forever. And when that is the case, then that should be the case. But if we just come at it with a hard rule, if a judge comes at it with a hard rule that, hey, this offense deserves this punishment and I'm going to give it every time, then they don't leave any room for a person to overcome and become a productive member of society again. Hmm. You know, if they've had a chance to do that or two or three and they've, you know, fallen back, then, you know, there's certainly the recidivism argument. And we say, okay, this person cannot be a functioning member of society. So we keep them out of society. Yeah. But I never understood prosecutors coming in in the sentencing argument in just about every case and arguing for the maximum sentence every single time. It can't possibly be that the maximum sentences should be applied to every single person. The facts of every case are different. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we want both spiritually and in the, you know, criminal case as well. We want to see change in that individual for the better, right? That's right. And sometimes it feels like justice will do that. If we slap their hand hard enough, then they'll change. When in reality, that's the beauty of, you know, taking it back to a gospel context, that's the beauty of grace and the power of grace is that when you are the one receiving the grace, it's just so transforming that, you know, somebody else took the punishment or mercy was given when justice was deserved. And uh, that, that can be deeply influential and transformational when somebody feels that mercy and grace. That's right. And everybody's better off then. Yeah. Everybody's better off. So, yeah, I mean, I I enjoy the judge in Israel part of being a bishop because to me, it's about helping people overcome and, you know, get back on that covenant path and just improve, you know, just move along, just overcome the thing that is keeping them from progressing along the covenant path slowing their spiritual momentum, to use the uh, President Nelson's phraseology. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I'd see that's a bishop's, really a bishop's job. Not only, you know, I mean, not everything needs to come to the bishop, you know, for repentance. And But a bishop has a responsibility to help people understand that they need to be repenting all the time and applying the atonement every day to maintain that spiritual momentum. Or they could get so far off the path that then they require some more significant intervention. And so anyway, I, I, that's the best part of being a bishop, I think, is to, yeah. was when people see that and grasp that and, and incorporate that into what they do. Yeah. So take us to that dynamic of, of making a tough decision or whether it's, a, you know, a sentencing type of arrangement or the end of a trial and, and you have to make the decision. I mean, obviously, I would imagine with every decision you made, it was very prayerful. I mean, that should be assumed that that you're reaching for the divine and to make the best decision for all involved. Is it a gut feeling thing? Is there is there any type of equation you use, maybe more logical approach? I mean, what can we learn about just that process that you would typically go through to make a decision on something so heavy like that? Yeah, of course, the law says that a judge, a judge can be religious. There's nothing wrong with a judge being religious, and a judge can be prayerful. But when a judge makes a decision about a case, he cannot, you know, say, "Okay, I'm going to pray to know whether I should give him five years, ten years, or fifteen years." Pray, okay, I'm, 
that the law says the judge cannot abandon his responsibilities as a judge to his religious practices. Yeah. And so I never did that. I always prayed in my personal prayers that I would be given discernment and a gift of discernment and that I would most important thing is is that you don't miss anything you know in the facts because if you're if you're making the decision on the sentence or the or the guilt or innocence you want to know all the facts you can possibly know and you don't want to miss any fact that might be important so that was my general prayer in the beginning when i became a judge and i told you that i was you know that i've already told you that i was very unsure of my abilities to do that i just felt really inadequate to that task. And I just decided in the beginning and said, look, I'm going to have to rely on Heavenly Father to help me make the right decisions. And so from the very start, in every single case where I had to make a decision, I would pray about it. But I did it from the Doctrine and Covenants when the Lord told him, Look, you took no thought, save it were, to ask me. Don't just pray and ask me to be able to do this. Study it out in your own mind and then ask me if it's right. And if it's right, I will cause your bosom to burn within you. So I've always really believed that that was true, that that was pure truth that the Lord taught through the prophet Joseph. And, um, you know, I applied it in my own personal life all the time. And probably like you, <laughs> I would go weeks, years, months, years without getting an answer. And even sometimes when I felt like I was getting an answer, I wasn't really sure. But I applied that in my role as a judge. And I will tell you that every single time, every single time, and you know, you don't have a lot of time for making these decisions. Like when you're in your deliberations as the judge, you got everybody waiting out there for you to come back with your decision. And you can take as long as you want, but you can't take forever. Yeah. So I would go back. I would study the evidence, review it, review my notes, and come to a conclusion in my mind about, based upon my knowledge of the law and my knowledge of the facts and evidence in the case, and come to that tentative conclusion in my mind. And then I would pray for a confirmation. Or to let me know that that's not the right thing. And (laughs) this was the thing that was the amazing thing to me about the whole experience is that every single time I got an answer immediately, not Hmm. I didn't have to wait hours or weeks or days immediately, I would get an unmistakable confirmation or frequently, occasionally, I would get the stupor. There would be something that would say, you miss something, you miss something. Mm -hmm. And whenever I got that sense, I would go back over everything again. And sure enough, I would find something that I missed when I heard the facts and evidence in the case or looked at it all the first time. I would find something that I missed that made a big difference in my decision. And then I would go again to the Lord for a confirmation and get a confirmation. And I was surprised about that. Because a lot of times these were people that had done some really bad things, you know? Yeah. And it was it was really humbling that the Lord wanted them, wanted things done right. He wanted it right. He wanted it right for the victims. 
He wanted it right for the accused. He cares about us all. And he, he wanted it done right and, you know, uh, helped me to do it. There's no way I could have done it otherwise. Yeah. Wow. And I would imagine in those deliberation rooms, I mean, you're alone making those things. I, I'm sure you don't want any influences, nor are that it's probably no. not allowed to have yeah. those influences, right? <laughs> Judging is a lonely business. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that there's times where, I mean, there's just no great decision, right? And maybe, you know, you do your best to make the call, but it just de- never really sits well until maybe you can just move on to the next thing. Like, are there's, uh, tell me about those impossible calls that you have to make. Yeah, those are hard. When I would have doubts about, like, you know, when I would have doubts about, about a case after the case was over with, when I would think, gosh, did I do the right thing? I would always go back to the feeling that I had. And so hmm. I couldn't deny those feelings. I couldn't deny them. And so they gave, it gave me confidence, not confidence in myself, but confidence, you know, in the Lord giving me, magnifying my abilities beyond their natural level. I mean, there's no doubt about it. In most of these cases, you don't know the entire truth. I mean, there's stuff that doesn't come out. There's stuff that comes out a different way than it, than is probably true. People perceive things differently. And so you don't want it. You don't want the outcome to be, you know, wrong because of those things. And so it's impossible. I just don't believe that, that, a, that a, any judge relying on their own uh, wits can figure it out completely right all the time. Hmm. It's just too hard. Yeah. I mean, I look. I know that there are a lot smarter people than me, a lot smarter judges than I am. <laughs> but I don't care who you are. If you're John Roberts on the Supreme Court, you just you can't do it alone. It's too important, and and you're too, and you're immortal, so you're limited. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you just have to make a call sometimes, right? And that's right. And, and I love and that. If, and, Go ahead. And if you're going to do that, you want to have the most help you can have. And since you can't bring a bunch of buddies in to, <laughs> you know, say, okay, let's figure this out. Yep. Love it. Any other, you know, principle that you, that you lean on at times to just help you through making calls and decisions as, as the judge in Israel? Yeah. And this thing, I always, when I got put in leadership positions in the army, my experience in this sort of informed my leadership model, the way I tried to be as a leader in the army. And that was, you know, kindness will win every time. Hmm. So, you know, it's not your job as the bishop to my mission president. I had three mission presidents. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a two-year <laughs> two mission, but I had three mission presidents. And Elder Worthland was my mission president for a couple of months because there was a, a gap in between. And he was a 70 at the time. Uh-huh. There was a gap in between my first mission president, and my second mission president. So there was Elder Worthland. And I remember him telling me one time, you know, this stuff about reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Spirit. A lot of times people forget that you only do that when you're moved upon by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Not every time. <laughs> That's right. And he said, I will tell you that in my entirety of church service, 
I have never been moved upon by the Holy Spirit to reprove with sharpness. Yeah. And that's coming from a guy who had been, you know, a bishop many times, a stake president, a 70, and ultimately was an apostle. Yeah. Uh, so I took that lesson and I, 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 I don't, I think that that's a rarity when that has to happen. And so I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to have a, a real revelation before, <laughs> before I do that. If the Holy Spirit's going to move upon me to do that, then the Holy Spirit needs to make it clear to me <laughs> yeah. or I'm not going to do that because the downside of doing that at the, at the wrong time is much, much greater than the downside of not doing it when you should. Right. You can yeah, always go back and do that later if you need to. Yeah. So I try to apply that in all my church position, church leadership uh, responsibilities. And I try to do the same thing in the army, you know, the best leader I ever had. I mean, he was exactly like that. Not a member of the church, just the best leader I've ever known. And he taught me that most of the time, everybody's trying to do their best. Take that as a given and then let that inform how you treat them when they make a mistake. If somebody's trying to do their best and make a mistake, they need help. They don't need to be yelled at, you know, or made to feel stupid. Yeah. One time I, uh, this guy was my boss and I uh, got a little disrespectful. We were deployed and, you know, life was tough and we were living in rough conditions. And another guy on the staff, a senior, a guy senior to me, did something that I thought was not appropriate. So he and I locked horns and then I was disrespectful to him. And he went, he went to my boss about it. And the next day I was expecting, you know, everything to come down on me. Hmm. And uh, my boss just, he wasn't saying anything about it. And I was sitting right beside of him and we were working and I said, uh, well, sir, did, uh, did so-and-so, did you hear about what happened with so-and-so? And he said, I did. I said, well, sir, I'm ready take whatever is coming my way for that. And he just said, he reached over and put his hand on my arm right here and said, Jeffrey, just be nice. Hmm. And that was it. That was my chewing out, my counseling, my, <laughs> my punishment. Just be nice. So I tr I've tried to be, you know, tried to do things that way. Follow his example. Yeah, I really like that because there is this feeling, especially maybe in the context of a bishop's office, where somebody has done some things that are very regrettable and maybe even hurt others in their life or, or other people in the ward or whatever it is. And there's this feeling of like, I need to show you how serious this is by how angry I get or, you know, how intense I get. That's um, right. In reality, most of the time they already understand that when they walk in the door, right? That's right. The first thing you got to do is find out if they already understand that. And if they do, half the battle's won. Yeah. All you've got to do then is help them with the steps they need to take next to put it behind them and to move on down the line. Yeah. Really good. Really good. You know, putting up the, you know, the, the legal system, even military or not, next to the system in the church, you know, with judges and whatnot uh, and how things will be handled if somebody, you know, makes a mistake or sins or whatnot, oftentimes the judge or the, uh, the bishop or the stake president is often feeling the role as judge, jury, and executioner, right? And sometimes I worry, like, you know, obviously a person in the legal system, they have the right to an attorney and someone who knows the law to represent them and to make sure that things are handled well. 
Where in the church system, that's not really the case. It's sort of like, you come in here, I'm the bishop, I'm going to tell you how this goes. And I've heard stories of individuals maybe being treated inappropriately because they didn't know better. They didn't know that the, the bishop shouldn't do that or that that was maybe too excessive or whatnot. And so I don't know if it's around the principle of fairness or you know giving somebody a fair trial in the context of the bishop, or maybe that stuff just doesn't even exist in that context. I don't know. But from being in both worlds, like what comes to mind when when somebody comes in and you're filling all those different roles and you want to make sure that they're treated with fairness and rather than you're just going to tell them how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And I've heard of those situations as well where, you know, uh, an inexperienced bishop or stake president or somebody who really, you know, sort of has the wrong idea about what their role is as a judge in Israel just comes down and handles it in a way that, you know, makes things worse instead of better. You know, and I think it has to do with just understanding. Maybe we shouldn't use the term judge in Israel, Hmm. you know, because the term judge has too heavy and too divergent connotation to what the Savior did. I mean, he's we got the best example right before us, right? The woman taken in adultery. He listened to everybody plead the case for justice, right? And then he answered their arguments with an argument for mercy and then told her to go thy way and sin no more. Now, he didn't let her completely off the hook. He forgave her and he told her don't do it anymore, appropriate to those circumstances. Now, who knows how he would have handled it if she'd come back you know, with the same thing again later. I don't know. But I think the leaders in the church have to understand that our role 99% of the time, and I've, I've sat on uh, disciplinary councils, what they used to call disciplinary councils. Our role 99% of the time is to help the person apply the atonement. And, you know, certain things have to be discussed with your bishop or your stake and or your stake president. Not so that the the bishop and stake president have to understand that 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 discussion is not so that you can decide, you know, this person is a terrible person and all of these things, (laughs) but so that you can decide and should be sent to outer darkness, but so that you can decide what needs to have to happen to uh, help them along the road to repentance and to protect the name of the church. And my experience has been that protecting the name of the church is usually not a big consideration. I mean, there are occasions when that is something that's a big thing in a particular case. But most of the time, it's all about this person has done something wrong. The Spirit has prompted them to repent of that thing, and they are genuinely coming to you trying to do that. And so you, your job is to help them, not to uh, make them feel like they should, uh, you know, they should wait outside and listen to the sacrament meeting in the, in the foyer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I love that clarity that the recent handbook changes brought that, you know, repentance isn't about punishment. It should never exactly. be about punishment. Yeah. Right? Where, I don't know, I mean, you correct me, but in the criminal law. I mean, sometimes, yeah, this is about punishment, you know, like you, you need to be put away for a while. Like this is That's not, right. you know, 
so that it's hard to draw that. And so maybe that even that, like you said, the the title of judge in Israel, and obviously there's different connotations and things related to that. But but you should emphasize in Israel part, right? Right in the, Israel, the, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That should be the emphasis. That changes the entire connotation of the word judge. Yeah. So any other principle or concept before we wrap up? I mean, do we do we cover them all as far as just a? I will say that my experience in the church helped me more with my responsibilities in the army than vice versa. Yeah. Now, you know, I learned a lot of things about organization and getting things done in the army that I would like to apply to the church. <laughs> but as my as my good wife continually tells me, this is not the army. <laughs> and so when people don't answer my emails, I just have to smile and say, eventually this will pass. <laughs> yeah. You can't pull rank as often, right? <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. You can't, you know, nobody cares if they get a, an email from me now and I just have to learn to live with that. That's yeah. the, that's the thing. That's and awesome. try to, and try to introduce it as many efficiencies as I think are appropriate, you know, so our meetings can run better. If you've, if you've been in ward council meetings, I'm sure that you thought, holy smokes. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's not helpful. Those aren't productive. Um, awesome. So, uh, you know, try to do that a little bit, but understanding that, like my wife says, this is not the army. Yep. Love it. Well, last question I have for you, uh, Jeffrey, is just as you reflect on your time as a leader and maybe even as a judge, you know, a, a judge in the army, how has is, how is being a, a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Well, that's a great question. You know, I have seen many times, you know, in the military, move every two years and every year somebody's moving. So your ward and it changes all the time. I mean, you're you're essentially in a basically a new ward every year. And so sometimes you're teaching primary class and sometimes you're the branch president or the bishop and sometimes you're doing this and sometimes you're doing that. And there sometimes is a tendency to say, hey, and not just in that context, but in the church in general, there's a tendency to be critical of our leaders because we wouldn't do it that way. And one thing that experience in the army of always having change occur in, you know, in your church callings and in your church experience taught me was, hey, it's his turn to be the bishop or the stake president or the elders quorum president or her turn to be the primary president. You will have that turn sometime. And when that you have that turn, you're going to want the people who you are leading to support you, to sustain you, or you cannot do what you've been asked to do. And so when it's not your time to lead, you got to give what you expect to get when it's your turn to lead. And if you don't, if you don't do that as a follower, then you can't expect support when it's your turn to lead. You will probably get it anyway, but you ought to be ashamed of yourself, right? Nobody's the perfect leader other than the Savior, and we're all just trying to be like Him. So when it's your turn to follow, be the best follower you can be. Always be raising your hand when you're asked who will come early and are set up for our activity or are those sorts of things. I mean, 
be the kind of follower that you want when you're a leader. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. Remember, solve the burden of meetings by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14 and getting 14 days access to the Meetings with Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.